Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Today's episode is sponsored by Movement Watches. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and today we're going to find out just exactly why and how Edward Eights was convicted of the murder of Elnora Griffin. Ed's ordeal was longer than most. Elnora was murdered on July 22, 1993, and Ed was not convicted until August 12, 1998, over five years later. Five years is a long time to wait for the state to get their conviction. But in Ed's case, it was a long and complicated road. But at the end of the day, five years later, 12 jurors voted unanimously to convict him. And that is the subject of today's episode, the jury. But before we get into the jury that convicted Edward Eights in 1998, let's first rewind and start at the first trial that happened in 1996. Ed was first arrested for this murder about 30 days after the fact in August of 1993. He spent about eight months in the Smith County Jail before he was finally able to bond out in April of 1994. By that time, his life was already changing. His relationship with Monica Bush was over. He needed to find a new job, which he eventually did working for none other than Francis Johnson. He spent that summer working with Francis, and then as you heard last week, in October of 1994, he met his now-wife Kimberly at a Halloween party. At this point, it had been over a year, and Ed wasn't even sure if they were going to try him. He knew there was no real evidence against him. There couldn't be. As he told me today on the phone, I didn't do it, so there's no way they could have had proof that I did it. And he was right, and months eventually turned into years. This was all happening right on the heels of David Dobbs getting his conviction against Kerry Max Cook. Kerry was convicted and sentenced to death for the second time in 1994. My guess is that Dobbs, coming off of a big win, didn't want to take a risk at a trial without much evidence. But the record appears to indicate that Judge Louis Gohmert was pressing to get this case brought to trial. And we see even more of this frustration in the transcripts of the second trial, where Gomert over and over again is expressing his irritation by the fact that this case has been lingering for so many years. Three years after the fact, in 1996, the Smith County District Attorney's Office, and namely David Dobbs, finally brought Edward Eights to trial. I don't have a copy of these trial transcripts. No one's been able to locate them so far. But based on references to the first trial and the transcripts of the second, and the copies of the notes that the jurors in the first trial had sent to the judge, it appears that this first trial was a real catastrophe for Smith County. 
We know that they were trying to prove that an innocent man was guilty. But in the first trial, they were trying to do so with nothing more than circumstantial or speculative evidence. And the jury wasn't buying it. After about a week of trial testimony and evidence, the jury was sent back to deliberate. Now, you all heard Kim say last week that she was concerned about the second trial because the jury was all white, which we'll get into here in just a little bit. But there were two black jurors at the first trial. But after I've read all the notes sent to the judge from the jury, it's painfully obvious that the problem for the state was not the fact that there were two black jurors. It was the fact that they had no real evidence. The vote in that first trial was not 10 to 2. In fact, I'm looking at one of the notes that the jury foreman had sent to Judge Gomert during that first trial. This was a status update after Judge Gomert had issued his first Allen charge, or as you heard Ed call it back in episode 210, he dynamited the jury. And for those of you that don't know what that means, an Allen charge is when the jury tells the judge that they cannot come to a unanimous decision, and he sends a letter back to them telling them to go back into deliberations, basically not accepting the hung jury. So in the first trial, after they'd already been issued one Allen charge, the jurors sent a note that showed what the progress was throughout the day. It says that at 11 a.m., the votes were six for not guilty, four for guilty, and two were undecided. And then three hours later, at 2 p.m., they voted again, and now the vote was seven for not guilty, four for guilty, and one undecided. And then three and a half hours later, they voted once again, and at this point, it was six guilty and six not guilty. At this point, Judge Gomert issued a second Allen charge, which in my opinion is just absolutely insane. This was not a 10 to 1 vote. There wasn't one holdout that they might get to change their mind. At best, after an entire day and a half of deliberations, this jury was split right down the middle. In fact, this is exactly what the note to the judge read. Judge Gomert, the jury has been talking, and at this point, this is where we are. It appears we will be here for quite some time. Tempers are beginning to flare. What are our options? And again, I'll remind you that this was after the jury had already written notes to the judge telling them that they're deadlocked and they cannot come up with a unanimous verdict, and the judge ordered them to continue deliberating. And after another full day, they're still split right down the middle. And you can see the desperation. Again, tempers are beginning to flare. What are our options? So you can see here from this note with the votes that this was not 10 white people wanting to convict Edward Eights and two black people holding out. They were split right down the middle, and in fact, at one point, there were seven people that were voting not guilty, and four were voting guilty, with one undecided. Eventually, Judge Gomert finally gives in and declares a mistrial. And it's clear from the second trial transcripts that he wanted this case to be retried right away. He said that he expected this case to be retried within a month, but he said that almost two years after this first trial. Ed tells me that when the trial was over, his lawyers didn't think the state would try it again. The case was a disaster, and he didn't see how they could possibly get a conviction with the evidence that they had. He told Ed to keep his nose clean, live his life, and make sure he comes back every time they call him in for a docket call. In the two years between the two trials, Ed and Kim got married, Kim got pregnant with their second child, Ed went to trucking school and got a good job, they bought a house together. He thought that the ordeal might be over. But then in the summer of 1997, something changed. 
All of a sudden, he started getting docket calls, as he said, several times a week, where he would have to drive all the way back to Smith County to appear in court from Dallas, which is about a two-hour drive. According to Ed, they were intentionally trying to violate his bond, which didn't make a lot of sense because both sides had filed multiple continuances with the judge over the previous year and a half. But for some reason, it was becoming painfully obvious that David Dobbs and Jack Skeen wanted Ed back in that Smith County jail. So what could have triggered all of this? Well, I think it was a couple of things. For starters, 1997 is the year that Kerry Max Cook's 1994 conviction was thrown out. And it wasn't just thrown out. The presiding court's opinion not only threw his conviction out, but stated in no uncertain terms that the prosecutorial and police misconduct in Kerry Max Cook's case was so extreme that the court didn't believe that he could ever receive a fair trial. News of this ruling made national news and was certainly all over Texas. Well, except with the Tyler Morning Telegraph and KLTV. I believe their headlines read that a murderer had been released. But this was a huge embarrassment to David Dobbs and the Smith County District Attorney's Office. At one point, they even tried to sue one of the newspapers for libel, a lawsuit that was unsuccessful. I guess they didn't realize that in order for something to be considered libelous, it has to be untrue. But I believe that Kerry Max Cook's conviction getting thrown out was one of the major triggers that brought Edward Eights back to trial. Like I told you last week, a very reliable source told me that it is an unwritten rule in the Smith County District Attorney's Office that if an assistant district attorney loses three cases, that they lose their job. And in David Dobbs' case, not only did his big win of convicting Kerry Max Cook get thrown out, but he was embarrassed all throughout the state and the country. So they had to retry Ed Eights. But they had nothing on him. They weren't even close to getting a guilty verdict in the last trial. So then enter Kenny Snow. During the time when all of this was happening, Kenny Snow was sitting in the Smith County Jail. Remember, he had been arrested for a robbery and the aggravated robbery back in January of that year. Kenny had reached out to David Dobbs about another case, a guy by the name of Justin Fuller, telling him that he had information about things that he had seen and overheard. And according to Kenny, the next thing that happened was David Dobbs and Dennis Murphy came to visit him and told him that they were going to violate Edward Eight's bond and get him back into the jail. And we'll get into all of that story next week. But I believe that the combination of Kerry Max Cook's conviction getting thrown out and David Dobbs and the Smith County DA getting smeared all over the state and the country followed up with the Smith County DA's office having someone in custody that they saw as being a viable snitch. I think that all of that is what triggered them bringing Edward Eights back in and sending him back to trial. And there's a whole lot that happened between the time Ed was arrested in 1997 for violating his bond and when the trial actually began in August of 98. But that's all information for another episode. But in this episode, right after the break for the ad, we're going to break down what happened with this, quote, impartial jury in Edward Eights' second trial. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ed's second trial was extremely odd right from the very beginning. The whole process of War Dyer, our jury selection, is designed to have a completely impartial jury that doesn't know anything about the case when the trial begins. But in Ed's case, it was clear that this was not going to happen right from the beginning. Jury selection for Ed's second trial actually began in June of 1998, about six weeks before the trial. A jury pool of 70 individuals was brought in, they were introduced to Edward Eights, told that he was being charged with the murder of Elnora Griffin, and that the trial was not going to take place for six weeks after the jury was seated. Meaning that's six weeks for these jurors to read articles in the newspaper, see news stories on TV, research the case. They could do whatever they wanted. This move was just baffling to me, and I wasn't the only one. It was actually Judge Gomert that insisted that they selected the jury on that day in June. There were things that had come up and they were going to have another continuance and they knew the trial wasn't starting for six weeks, but he was insisting that they go ahead and select the jury at this time. Even David Dobbs expressed concern. He actually said in one of the bench conferences that aren't we worried about tainting the jury? But in my opinion, based on reading the transcripts, Gomert was worried about wasting the jurors' time because he didn't want to upset any of the tax base in Smith County because he was afraid that people would remember it when it came back to election time. So we start right out by selecting a jury and then sending them home for six weeks. And remember, the news in Smith County is not the news. We've known for a long time that the Tyler Morning Telegraph and KLTV report the prosecution story, not the news. So any media coverage of Edward Eight's pending trial would have been information provided to the news people by the Smith County District Attorney's Office. I spoke to two of the jurors that sat on Ed's trial this week, and neither of them remembered if they had seen any news coverage, and for that matter didn't even really remember the fact that there was a six-week gap. But nonetheless, on that day, the jury was selected. Seventy jurors were in the pool. Four of them were excused before Voidir began. So Ed was left with a jury pool of 66 people. Of those 66 potential jurors, 8 of them were African American. So only about 12% of the jurors that were selected for that day were African American. During the process of voir dire, if any of you aren't familiar with it, both sides, the prosecution and the defense, get to question the jurors and decide if there's anyone that they want to remove. You're not actually selecting the jury you're selecting the people that you don't want on the jury. There are two ways that either side can remove jurors. The first is for cause. An example of that would be if, say, the defense attorney was questioning one of the jurors and they said that they know one of the police officers who was investigating the case. The defense attorney could then request to the judge to remove that juror because of bias. That's a strike for cause. But both sides are also given a number of peremptive strikes. 
These are strikes that either side can use to remove jurors without cause. They can remove them for pretty much any reason they want to, but one thing that they cannot do is remove jurors in a preemptive strike based on race. In this case, both sides were given 10 preemptive strikes. So let's look into what David Dobbs did with all of his strikes. Remember, 8 out of the 66 potential jurors were African American. Dobbs removed two of the black jurors for cause. That left six. Then we get into Dobbs' preemptive strikes. Out of his ten preemptive strikes, David Dobbs used six of them to remove the remaining six black jurors from the pool. That left an entire jury of 12 plus three alternates, and none of them were African American. Ed's attorney, Cliff Roberson, immediately filed a Batson motion. This is a motion that an attorney files challenging the preemptive strikes of the other side, claiming that their strikes were made based on race. Judge Gomert held the hearing right then and there on the spot. And the way these Batson hearings work is whoever's filing the Batson motion makes a case for each person that the other side struck to the judge, one by one. And in this case, he would mention a juror, claim that the juror was struck because of their race. Dobson would get up to defend his strike. Several of them he claimed he struck because they didn't disclose certain aspects of their criminal record. For example, Dobbs had asked the jurors if they had ever been convicted of anything higher than a DUI. One of the black jurors had been arrested for forgery by passing, or writing a bad check. And it sounds like that charge was eventually dropped. And when asked about it, she admitted to it, and explained that she didn't think that it fell into the category of being a greater offense than a DUI. That was the reason that Dobbs gave for striking her and Judge Gomer determined that he had a race-neutral reason for striking that juror, which was the case with every single juror that Cliff Robertson brought up. Robertson argued his case well. He drew parallels to the judge with other white jurors that Dobbs left on the jury that had similar issues, where they hadn't disclosed something. But still, Judge Gomer wasn't hearing it. So at the end of the day, the jury was seated, and it could not have been much worse of a jury for Ed Eights. Out of the 12 jurors that had been seated, none of them were African American, and 8 out of the 12 were female. When you have a young black male who is being tried for murdering a woman, having 8 middle-aged white women on the jury is not a good thing. But that was the situation Ed Eights was in. Once the jury was seated, Judge Gomer thanked them for their time and told them he'd see them all in August. Before I get into what went on during the second trial, I want to talk for a minute about something that didn't go on. We've spoken about Kubia Jackson's testimony at trial number two a few weeks ago. There wasn't a lot to her testimony. She basically just told the jury that on the night Elnora was killed, that she had called her, and Elnora told her that she was sitting there talking to Edward Ates. But in looking through the jury notes that were sent to the judge in the first trial, it appears that she had a little bit more to say the first time around. Let me read to you one of the questions that was asked of the judge during the first trial. Judge, did Kubia Jackson, during testimony, warn Elnora Griffin of Leonard Mosley's behavior habits when he was drinking? Did Kubia Jackson, in her testimony, say she had knowledge of behavior changes in Leonard Mosley during times that he was drinking alcohol? Now, Judge Gomer did not give the jury the testimony they were asking for. He told them in his note back that there's nothing in Kubia Jackson's testimony that will help answer their question. The next day, the question came up again. 
to the court. The jury requests to hear the testimony of Kubia Jackson in regards to her warning to Elnora Griffin about the drinking and or violent actions of Leonard Mosley. And again, Judge Gomer denies a request to see that part of the testimony. My assumption is that that testimony was probably objected to by the state and the judge had asked the jury to disregard. And that's why he wouldn't read them that testimony, because they were never supposed to hear it in the first place. But knowing this helps us to set the stage as to what went wrong at that second trial. The state had obviously learned from their mistakes at the first trial. Like I said last week, this time they went in with a jailhouse snitch, and a lot of testimony had miraculously changed over the last two years. Kubia Jackson's, Monica Bush's, even Jesse Nelson's. Now, like I mentioned before, I spoke with a couple of the jurors from Ed's trial this week. You will be hearing some clips of me talking to them, but they have both asked me not to identify them by name. So we'll just refer to them as the male juror and the female juror. Once the trial was over, the jury was sent back to the deliberation room, where they deliberated for two long days. They began their deliberations at noon on the first day, They continued deliberating all the way up until 10 o'clock at night, where they were sequestered to a hotel. The next day, it looks like they started before 9, and again they deliberated till almost 10 o'clock at night. And then on the morning of the third day, within a half hour of when they got into the jury room, they had their verdict. This trial went better than the first for the state. By the end of the first day, they had 10 guilty votes and only 2 not guilty votes. Here's a short clip of my discussion with the female juror when I asked about the overall tone in the jury room and what she thought of the other jurors. The only thing I remember about was she had him convicted before the trial ever began. Oh, really? Yeah, she was one of those that just... Already had her mind made up. Yeah, and that to me, that was very wrong. So, just seems like was one that might have been prejudiced against black people. I don't know. I didn't like from the beginning. (laughs) So this juror told me that right from the beginning, there was at least one person that not only believed that Ed was guilty from the beginning of deliberations, but she thought that he was guilty before the trial even began. But by the end of the first day of deliberation, at 10 o'clock at night, the jury was still split, 10 to 2. The foreman wrote Judge Gomert a note saying that they were tended to and they had no confidence at all in a unanimous verdict. The female juror's voice that you just heard a minute ago was one of the holdouts who was voting not guilty. Since she did eventually change her mind, I asked her what evidence did she see that made her believe that Ed may have been guilty. This is what she said. Do you remember like what evidence it was that made you so sure that he was that he was guilty when you gave your verdict? I remember something about feces on his shoe. He had made tracks with his shoe. Um, I can't remember what else. I also asked the male juror the same question. I'm sure there was there was something that was like a hanging point for you that made you think that he was guilty. Do you re- do you remember if there was something yeah, like that? Yeah, and every time I'm in a in a store and I see a jolly. Uh, Jolly Rancher candy, I think about that, because that seemed to be a pretty, in my mind, and whether it's valid or not, after the fact, I don't know, but it seemed to put him in at the scene of the crime because it was so, uh, I guess they found several pieces of 
candy wrappers, Jolly Rancher candy wrappers, in his personal space as well as at the crime scene. That way, perhaps hev- more heavily on, on my mind than anything else that comes to mind. So, as I said, I still think about that every time I see a package of uh, Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> After talking to both of these jurors, I have to admit that I feel a bit vindicated. After reviewing all of the trial transcripts, I said a few weeks ago that I believe that one of the biggest reasons that Ed was convicted was because of his own defense attorney's portrayal of the evidence that had been presented at trial. In their closing arguments, Ed's own attorney said the words human fecal material that was found on his shoe 16 times. And the female juror told me that the only thing that she saw that made her think that he may have been guilty was the fecal material on his shoe. And I also told you that the actual evidence and trial testimony of Dale Huckel and Jason Waller were that they had only found one Jolly Rancher wrapper on the crime scene and that it was found in a trash can in the guest bathroom after the scene had been turned back over to the family. But in the closing arguments, it appeared to me that Ed's own attorneys in their closing argument planted the seed in the jury's head that all of the candy wrappers that were found in the crime scene and in the car were Jolly Rancher wrappers, which was simply not true. And as this male juror just told us, that was the impression that he got as well. He thought that there were a bunch of Jolly Rancher rappers found on that crime scene, when the reality of it is there were none found on that crime scene, other than the one that was found after the family had moved back into the house. But that wasn't the only reason why this male juror believed that Edward Ates was guilty. I was uncomfortable in the beginning. I was uncomfortable about the fact that it was the the evidence was circumstantial. But over time, what really bothered me more than anything about the case was that Mr. H never took the stand and did not, uh, would not make eye contact with me or anybody else on the jury that I saw anyway. What this juror just said here is something that I find to be one of the biggest flaws in the American criminal justice system. On paper, you are innocent until proven guilty. It is not the defense's burden to prove their innocence but rather it is the prosecution's burden to prove your guilt. Defendants almost never take the stand, and they are typically instructed by their lawyers to sit still, look forward, don't look at the jury, and just be quiet. But the reality of it is that human nature of the human beings that are in that jury box see that behavior as a sign of guilt. And that was certainly the case with Ed. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But getting back to the process of the deliberations. So remember, they deliberated the first day from noon until after 9 o'clock p.m., where the jurors sent a note to the judge that said it was 10 to 2, they had no confidence in the unanimous verdict, and the judge sequestered them to a hotel for the night. The next morning, they were back in the jury room before 9 o'clock, and at 9.37 a.m., they sent a second note to the judge. This note read much the same as the one from the night before. It said they are still hopelessly deadlocked at 10 to 2, and they have no confidence in a unanimous verdict. This is the point where Judge Gomert issued the first Allen charge that he read to the jury at 10 o'clock in the morning on the second day. Ed's attorneys immediately objected to this. 
Roberson argued before Judge Gomert that he was asking the jury to do something that they didn't want to do. He even went so far as to tell Gomert that he was coercing the jury. But Gomert wasn't having it, and he read this charge to the jury in open court. If this jury finds itself unable to arrive at a unanimous verdict, it will be necessary for the court to declare a mistrial and discharge the jury. The indictment will still be pending, and it is reasonable to assume that the case will be tried again before another jury at some time in the future. Any such future jury will be impaneled in the same way this jury has been impaneled, and will likely hear the same evidence which has been presented to this jury. The questions to be determined by that jury will be the same questions confronting you, and there is no reason to hope the next jury will find these questions any easier to decide than you have found them. With this additional instruction, you are requested to continue deliberations in an effort to arrive at a verdict that is acceptable to all members of the jury, if you can do so without doing violence to your conscience. Do not do violence to your conscience, but continue deliberating. This was read to the jury in open court at 9.50 a.m. on the second day. The jury went back into the deliberation room, and they continued to deliberate for seven more hours. So at this point, they had been deliberating for 17 hours total and had been sequestered in a hotel overnight. At 5 p.m. on the second day, the foreman of the jury sent another note to the judge. He stated again that they are still locked at 10 to 2, and they have no confidence in the unanimous verdict, and they are hopelessly deadlocked. Ten minutes later, Judge Gomert issued a second Allen charge, and this one was twice as long as the first one. Again, Roberson objected to this Allen charge. He was even more bold this time and again told the judge that he is coercing this jury into doing something that they do not want to do. But again, Judge Gomert overruled his objection, and this is the second Allen charge he read to the jury which, as you'll see, is twice as long as the first, and much more, let's say, persuasive. From Judge Gomert, This case has been tried very ably by both sides, and all the evidence either side has brought has been placed before you for your consideration, and a jury must decide this case. You have been selected by a very careful process of selection and have listened attentively and observed carefully the evidence throughout the trial. Although the verdict of the jury must represent the opinion of each individual juror, it by no means follows that the opinions of individual jurors held at one time may not be changed through the jury deliberation by conference with your fellow jurors. The very object of the jury system is to secure unanimity by comparison of views and consideration of the opinion of one's fellow jurors. Each juror should listen with deference to the arguments of the other jurors and no juror should go into the jury room with a blind determination that the verdict of the entire jury should represent his or her then opinions of the case, or with closed ears to the arguments of other jurors equally honest, intelligent, and dedicated. Do not do injustice to your own personal opinions, but do listen and consider the opinions of your fellow jurors in your deliberations upon a unanimous verdict. If this jury finds itself unable to arrive at a unanimous verdict, it will be necessary for the court to declare a mistrial and discharge the jury. The indictment will still be pending, and it is reasonable to assume that the case will be tried again before another jury at some future time. Any such future jury will be impaneled in the same way this jury has been impaneled, and will likely hear the same evidence which has been presented to this jury. The question to be determined by the jury will be the same questions confronting you and there is no reason to hope the next jury will find these questions any easier to decide than you have found them. The law provides that the jury shall be kept together for such a time as to render it altogether improbable that it can agree, and only the judge of this court can make that determination. 
With this additional instruction, you are requested to continue deliberations in an effort to arrive at a verdict that is acceptable to all members of the jury, if you can do so without violence to your conscience. Do not do violence to your conscience, but continue deliberating. At this point, according to both the jurors I spoke to, the jury at this point was well aware of the fact that they were not going to be getting out of there until they gave Judge Gomert a verdict. This was the male juror's impression of the Allen charges given by the judge. I know that she was a holdout for a couple of days, and I remember sending a note to the judge, and the, uh, the answer came back as a uh, hung jury was not an option. <laughs> so we were hopelessly deadlocked. And, and uh, so mainly, what I remember mostly was coming to the conclusion mainly that my role was to allow and, and promote open discussion, mm-hmm. but not to try to influence anybody. And, uh, uh, and let them sort through it and, and work their way through it. My own personal decision, I came, I was about 63, uh, 6335 in favor of conviction, but I, I, there were some lingering doubts, as there must be, I think, in circumstantial evidence. But that's what I remember mostly about it. But I do definitely remember that's, that the, the note coming back that it was a, it was not an option. We, it was either going to be a guilty or not guilty, one or the other, but it was not going to be a hung jury. That's the one I remember. I didn't realize it happened twice or I'd forgotten that part. But uh, anyway. I asked the female juror why she had been holding out for so long and how the jury was eventually able to convict given all of the conflicting evidence that she had told me that she had heard. I've always been confused at how they got away from the fact that her body was found nude. There was semen on her comforter and semen found on her body. And the test of the semen showed that it did not belong to... to Edward Apes, I know. Yeah. That was, it belonged to somebody else. And that person was a witness, too. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember his name. Oh, I thought all that stuff was weird. That's why I didn't want to... See, as soon as the trial was over... All the jurists wanted to convict him right away. And I just felt like, whoa, you know, we should go over all the trial stuff and, you know, take our time. This was a young man's life we were dealing with. So on that second day, she continued to hold out, and they continued their deliberation for five more hours. At 10 o'clock that night, Judge Gomert said in open court that he could hear that there were still discussions happening back in the jury room, so he wanted to sequester the jury for another night. At this point, the jurors had been actively deliberating for 22 hours and were going to a hotel for their second night. This sequestration was not technically a third Allen charge, but it effectively was. After the second Allen charge had been issued, The jury was well aware that they were not going to be allowed to leave until after they gave them a unanimous verdict. So at 10 o'clock at night, the jury is taken out of the building and taken to another hotel. They spent the night, and the next morning they went into the deliberation room, and within less than 30 minutes they had a unanimous verdict. Edward Ates was guilty of the murder of Elnora Griffin. I asked both jurors what happened in the jury room on that third morning. They both told me the same thing. They didn't discuss any new evidence. They didn't have any discussion at all, really. Both of the two holdouts came in and said, fine, I vote guilty. Do you happen to remember or recall there was any new evidence discussed that morning, or did they? Did the other two just finally give in that last morning? 
That's my understanding, or that's my recollection. I don't think there was any new evidence presented. Uh, the holdups eventually just gave in for whatever their own reason. And this is what the female juror told me. And remember, she was one of those holdouts. She was one of the people that came in on that last day and changed her vote. Now, one of the things you're going to hear in this clip is me trying to console her. While the male juror never asked me, this woman point blank asked me if I believed that Ed was innocent. And I told her that through my investigation, I believed that he was. 10 o'clock at night at the second day when he said, you have to go back and continue deliberating. And then I don't know if you remember, but it looked like the next morning you guys came back in and with a half, within a half hour the next morning you had a verdict. And so oh, I, got, I prayed all that night on my knees. Okay. So, yeah, and I guess you would be the one that was the, that was, that was holding out. So you were the one that had, had to come around. So it had to, for you, it had to do with, with prayer overnight. Why, why you changed your mind? Yeah. I, I prayed all night long. I really, it's going to make me cry again. Hey, I feel bad for the family. Yeah. Well, and you need to, I mean, I believe that, the jury got it wrong, but I don't believe it was the jury's fault. There was, there were things that were shown to you guys that were misrepresented in really? order to get their conviction. Yeah, it was. It was. I mean, and that's a terrible, terrible thing. Yeah, that that's a horrible thing. Both of these two jurors have told me that they've never forgotten this case. Several of them actually became friends throughout the duration of the trial and met for coffee once a week for years. It had a lasting effect on them. And as you heard from the female juror, the trial is a painful memory. When I first started looking at this case, I wondered how a man could be claiming to me to be innocent when a jury of 12 random people all unanimously voted that he was guilty. But after reading all of the trial transcripts, in reading the juror notes, in reading all of Judge Gomert's rulings, in the dirty tricks played by the prosecutors, in the screw-ups by the defense attorneys, it's painfully obvious to me now that there are a lot of moving parts in order for something like this to happen, but it is indeed something that could happen to any of us. Well, I certainly hope that if he did not do it, that someone helps to find out the truth. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all of the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. Thank you to Daniel Schaefer for editing the podcast. Thank you to today's sponsor, Movement Watches. Remember, if you go to movementwatches.com, that's mvmtwatches.com slash truth, you can get 15% off of your entire purchase. And again, as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your support. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Send in your new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.